This is The Guardian. Today, as rail strikes continue, could this be the start of a British summer of industrial action? Train stations were eerily empty. Traffic jams surged. We need to get to where we're going. And by doing this for three days, it's going to cause chaos. As a zero-hour contract, basically, if I don't work, I don't get paid. So every time they go on strike, I end up losing money. It disrupts my travel, but you know what? If, if they feel they need to strike, that's their business. And I support them. I totally, totally, totally 100% back them. They have a right to stand up for the working rights. Um, and it's unfortunate that we don't have more uh, unions that are strong enough to stand up for that. After weeks of failed negotiations, on Tuesday, 40,000 rail workers held firm and joined the biggest nationwide rail strike Britain has seen in 30 years. Today, they are staging the second of their three planned walkouts this week. With inflation running at 11%, wages and benefits falling across the board, it's becoming impossible to keep up with a spiralling cost of living. So will other unions follow the rail workers' lead in the months ahead? This is just the beginning of an entire period in which politics is going to be turned upside down. There is a lot of palpable anger at a system that isn't working, that is making people poorer. And I would not bet that it stops here. From The Guardian, I'm Noshin Iqbal. Today in Focus, the rail unions fight to keep wages on track with living costs. Gwyn Topham, you're The Guardian and Observer's transport correspondent. On Tuesday, we had the first day of what has been described as the biggest rail strike since 1989. What happened? Well, 40,000 members of the RMT union walked out across Network Rail and 13 train operating companies in England. And the effect of that was pretty much to bring many train services to a halt. They didn't start till later in the morning. They ended by early evening. And most people around the country pretty much decided to avoid the trains rather than risk any kind of chaos. In fact, we didn't see much chaos. We mainly saw deserted city centres, very calm railway stations, and the few trains that were running did go pretty much to plan. Obviously, at the moment, many more people are working from home. And in nice weather, people are happy to walk and cycle. So maybe we didn't see the kind of gridlock it normally causes. But I think the people who really suffered are the people we didn't see out yesterday. Lots of students doing A-levels, workers around the country, key workers who obviously still do need to get to work. And some of those would have been sitting in traffic jams, perhaps even on motorways. But generally just people not getting where they wanted to be. Gwyn, we've got Test Match Cricket in Leeds starting today. And a lot of people are on their way to Glastonbury right now. Do you think the RMT deliberately chose a week that would cause maximum disruption? I think in general, when you're a union, you want your strike to have an impact. For the people taking action to, they're losing pay. They certainly calculated the way to do it, which is three staggered days, which means you lose half a week's pay, but you cause a whole week pretty much of disruption. 
It's hard to say. There always seems to be something going on, doesn't there? I, I don't know if they chose it exactly for that. But we did see a lot of trains did get away on non-strike days. So I would urge people not to give up because what we saw yesterday was actually some trains, particularly intercity trains, were quieter than other days. And all of this is taking place in the context of what seems to be an increasingly grim transport landscape in the UK. Can you tell me a bit about what else is going on? Well, you can't really escape the pain, even if you're driving or if you're trying to take a bus or even a plane at the moment. There are obviously record fuel prices for drivers. Filling up your car has probably gone up, not quite doubled, but it's certainly gone up sort of 80% for many, many people in the last year. If people who want to get a taxi, even there is a shortage of Uber drivers, there's a shortage of many kind of drivers in all sorts of sectors, which obviously last year we saw how that hit food supplies. Rail fares, as I've had people saying they're very high. If it's linked to inflation, they could go up by an even more eye-watering amount next year. And then, of course, the other thing that's really dominated the headlines is the airport chaos. For people trying to get away by plane, there's been a lot of uncertainty. In some airports, it's been a very grim experience of late. Do we know how the public feel about these strikes? It's quite divided. The polls, though, show, I think, People are slightly anti, but nowhere near as much as you might think. I think in the past, there's a real sense of like, why on earth is this union on strike? I think right now, people really know that the cost of living is biting. They know what it's been like to have a pay freeze. They also know that rail workers worked throughout the pandemic and put themselves at some risk. A lot of transport workers, bus drivers, rail station staff, there were fatalities from COVID and they went out to work at a time when people didn't know if it was... uh, a life-threatening disease or what later turned into the sort of Omicron and a bad case of flu for many people. So I think there's a real sense that these are key workers. These are people who put themselves on the line. Most of them have not had a pay rise. And people see it for themselves too. In balance, people are still anti the strikes, but it's a lot closer according to the polls than we've seen in previous years. And what's planned for today and for the rest of the week? Well, today, Thursday, is the second 24-hour walkout. There's another one planned for Saturday. Barring last-minute breakthroughs in talks, those two strikes will go ahead. Friday will be another slight disrupted day. Sunday, a slight disruption. Gwyn, can you tell me who is on each side of the negotiating table? Who are the characters? There are two sets of negotiations, really. There's the train operators and network rail. In a way, the focus is really on network rail at the moment because the main core of people who are on strike who affect the operation of the railway are the signalers who work for network rail without them the railway can't run at network rail there's a a guy called tim shoveler who's the chief negotiator we're offering um, a a real range of options uh, working very creatively to try and find ways of reducing the costs of running the railway. Who in his normal day job would be running a, one of the northern routes for network rail, but at the moment is pretty much in talks. On the union side, it's General Secretary Mick Lynch, who's somebody who looks very much in the mould of Bob Crow, but is supposed to be like, you know, a good negotiator. And we've seen a lot of him on the telly in recent days. Now, are you or are you not a Marxist? Because if you are a Marxist, then you're into revolution and into bringing down capitalism. So, are you or aren't you? (laughs) Richard, you do come up with the most remarkable twaddle sometimes. He's one of those people who is easy for the government to portray as a classic kind of union bogeyman of the past. But actually, so far, he's he's done pretty well, I think, in public. No, I'm I'm not a Marxist. I'm an elected official of the RMT. I'm a working-class bloke leading a a trade union dispute about jobs, pay and conditions of service. 
Gwyn, how did we get to this point? What led us to this moment? Essentially, this is a product of the pandemic. People were told to avoid rail travel and stay at home, obviously. And over those two years, the whole system's kind of collapsed in the way that rail finances were organised before. Passenger numbers went down to virtually nothing. And what happened was the government had to step in and tell private train companies, we're taking over, essentially. So beforehand, the train companies would have gone bust. The government stepped in and said, this is our problem now. We're going to run the railways and we're going to put you on different contracts. And they spent a lot of money. And two years down the line, revenue hasn't come back to where it was before. So the government is saying, we've got a problem. We can't keep paying all this money for the railway, which obviously is a, a decision. You know, Maybe they could keep paying the money for the railway because there was always a $4 billion subsidy. Now perhaps the subsidy would be going up to 6 or $7 billion. But it seems like traditional fare-paying commuters in the southeast are not coming back to work five days a week. And that was the bulk of rail revenue. So a year or so ago, the government indicated to rail companies, Network Rail, the budget wasn't going to go up or they weren't going to keep bailing them out. They told people to find savings. And the trouble is in rail, there aren't many easy savings to be made once you've bought your trains, if you're operating your stations and your track. It's quite difficult. And so I think they're very much trying to take this opportunity to say, right, we want reform. We want to to change the working practice. We want to rip up the rule book. We want people to work on Sundays. We want fewer people. We want to use more tech. Basically, at the end of that, they want to lose 1,800 jobs. I guess it's hard to separate the crisis and the sense that perhaps the union has that this is a sort of opportunistic way of trying to force the kind of changes that they wanted before. As far as we've heard, the offer so far is a 2% increase in pay. What's the RMT's position? Well, publicly, their line is no compulsory redundancies. That's a red line. They also say that the proposals are something that no union could accept, that it would put a lot more strain and stress on their members and would be an effective massive pay cut. So the union hasn't explicitly said what they want. They've spoken about uh, a pay rise that isn't an effective pay cut. That at the moment would actually be 11%. I think there's no hope of that. What they have pointed out is that when the pay rise was supposed to come into effect or when the deal should have been done, inflation was 7%. So that 7% figure has come to be seen as a bit of a benchmark. In all probability, I think a deal could be reached to something like 5% with guarantees on compulsory redundancies and some kind of movement that would allow Network Rail to lay off some staff on voluntary terms. And how involved have the government been in negotiations? What, for example, has the Transport Secretary Grant Shapps had to say? The government aren't directly involved. And this is something that Grant Shapps is saying, you know, it's all down to the employers. But as I think, to to quote Mick Lynch, he says, you know, the the fingerprints of Shapps and the, the DNA of Sunak are all over the kind of talks. And effectively, the government now does set the parameters because... Train operators are on very tight contracts. Network Rail has a budget that is, uh, it's been told it can't change. Though they're not directly involved, there's certainly a political context in which the train operators and Network Rail are negotiating and a financial context. And ministers have made it very clear that they can't see massive pay awards. Gwyn, we've got the second rail strike today and another on Saturday. What chance do you think that, that that's the end of it? And... What do you think is in store on the railways for the foreseeable future? 
Well, Saturday's the last scheduled day for now, but there's plenty more could happen if there isn't any movement on pay. And in a way, it could come to a crunch in July. Network Rail have said they're going to start moving on job cuts, which is sort of ratcheting up the pressure. It's really hard to see how this gets settled. Coming up, the Guardian columnist Aditya Chakraborty analyzes the politics behind the rail strikes and what it means for the Labour Party. Aditya Chakraborty, you're the Guardian's senior economics commentator. We're now in the middle of a week of industrial action on the railways. Is this a sign of things to come in other areas of British life? Short answer is yes. School teachers have already warned that they're thinking about going on some kind of industrial action. Uh, nurses are not very happy, um, but even barristers and lawyers uh, are also complaining about the, the, the settlements that they've got. I think the big pressure point is going to come in the public sector because that's where the government is the paymaster and the Treasury. Rishi Sunak would like to hold down pay rises in the public sector to about two to three percent. And why, in this economic context, is that such a big problem? We're in the outset of a big period of prices going up at the shops, at the petrol pumps, for basic things, right? So inflation at the moment is running at about 11% if you look at the retail price index. And the bet is that come autumn, winter, it will go up again when energy prices go up. And that means that an awful lot of workers will need to have double digit pay rises if they're to keep keep track with inflation, if they're wages to keep track with inflation. That's what this entire year is going to be about. Basically, the entire story of the UK in 2022 will be whether your average worker manage to see their salaries, their wages go up in line with prices. But what you're seeing effectively is nothing more than workers acting in their rational self-interest and asking for more money to cover their bills. Well, there have been multiple front pages suggesting that we're heading back to the 1970s. What exactly is meant by that? Depends which... <laughs> it depends which paper you mean, but... Most of the papers that are doing the, the, the briskest trade in this talk about return to the 70s, they will use terms like uh, union barons or beer and sandwiches or smoke filled rooms. Um, and what they're really talking about is some kind of caricature of what happened in the 70s. Well, we're at a Labour club on Merseyside and with us we have trade unionists, workers, employers and MPs. Now, the situation here tonight in Liverpool is that Leyland's Triumph plant is still at a standstill. Liverpool docks are at a standstill. 5,000 men are on strike there. Bird's Eye have been stopped for two months because of a strike and are threatening to shelve expansion plans. And now it seems that the Ford car plant at Hale Wood is threatened with a strike. And in fact, when it was felt that their... Labour, that workers, had too much power and were able to hold the government, uh, Ted Heath's government, to ransom, were also able to hold their employers to ransom. Um, inflation peaked in 1979, I think, at about 23%. So at the moment, we're a long way from that. But there is no doubt that we are, uh, when it comes to prices, 
we're up a long way from what we've been used to. My entire career as an economics journalist stretches back 25 years now, I'm, I'm sorry to say, and I don't think I've ever seen uh, inflation at, at, at this level. On the other hand, think about this. Trade unions are a, a fraction of the size and strength that they were in the 70s. Um, Margaret Thatcher and others crushed them time and time again from the minor strike on. And, and the result is that workers not only get a lower share of the national income than they did, but that from sick pay to strikes, British workers get among the roughest treatment in Western Europe. Um, so the result at, the, at this very moment is that average wages are falling at their fastest rate in two decades and that many workers rely on benefits or even food banks to get by. So the idea that we're living through, this, through some kind of um, reenactment of the 1970s is frankly for the birds. But there is this sense, isn't there, from a lot of newspapers, media outlets, right-wing politicians that sort of forms a general narrative that it's very easy to go on strike and these people are delighting in it and they're making your life worse. What do you make of that? It's not easy to go on strike. It costs money. They lose wages for going on strike. It's extremely hard to get the numbers that you need to get a mandate to go on strike. And actually, the RMT got a huge mandate to go on strike this week. Um, and... Conservative governments have made it harder and harder uh, for workers in this country to go and strike. So that when it comes to industrial action, um, British workers have got the toughest regime anywhere in Western Europe, I think. The thing you've definitely seen from this government is a plan to try and break strikes. Boris Johnson's got this half-cocked idea about bringing agency workers in to, to work the railways if they if they take in more strike action. It's interesting that not only the trade unions, but even employers um, have been protesting about that and saying it's not a good idea. So if you don't look at these strikes taking place and think, we're going back to the 70s, how do you understand them? Does this week seem like a turning point in any other way to you? I definitely think we're at an extraordinary moment in, in our political history. This is the point at which inflation becomes political with a big P. This is the point at which you get um, union leaders go toe-to-toe with government ministers and Boris Johnson having a go at Keir Starmer and trying to drag him in the middle of this. This is when it all becomes political. So let's break down the politics of this. Up until this point, the increasing cost of living has been this big cloud sort of just hanging over the Conservatives. But in a way, it feels like they may be seeing an opportunity here to try and change the conversation and turn it to their advantage by painting these strikes and the chaos and the inconvenience they say they are bringing to people as being led by the hard left and supported by Labour. What are they up to here? Oh, I think this is classic. Tory strategy, right? They don't want to talk in terms of uh, just rewards. They don't want to talk about economics at all because the economics aren't actually favourable to them. Um, the Thatcher revolution produced a low growth, low wage British economy. So the economic argument isn't actually very favourable to the Conservatives. What they want to do is make it some kind of cultural uh, dividing line. Um, and they've picked on a Labour leader who looks noticeably nervous anytime he's asked to pick a side, any side, like he doesn't like picking sides, right? His favourite position in any political debate is squarely on the pointiest bit of any fence. 
And the way that Keir Starmer has decided to sit on the fence with this is to basically instruct his MPs to actively not get involved. On Monday, he told his front bench to stay away from the picket lines. Now, a lot of Labour MPs did go against this and stood with the strikers. We expect more of the same today. There was a lot of criticism of that, though. I mean, the Labour Party was founded out of the trade union movement. What did you make of Starmer's response to the government strategy to make this a cultural issue? They know that they've got him in a weak position on this. And, I, and, and you do have to say that, that Labour leadership's response has been lamentably poor. Um, th- that They both stand incriminated by the people who are always going to incriminate them, whether in the right wing papers or in the right wing of the Conservative Party. Um, and they also look weak to people who naturally would look to them for, for allyship. The other thing I would say is this. If you're a Labour leader and you're looking at a situation at which the Conservative government is saying to workers that you shouldn't get pay rises in line with inflation and therefore you should be made poorer, if you're a Labour leader and you can't make a political battle out of that, then you shouldn't really be in politics. Edithia, putting yourself in Keir Starmer's shoes for a second, let's just say he's looking at the polling on this. He's seeing quite a complicated picture. It is close, but more people seem to oppose the strikes than support them. Ultimately, his priority is to win the next election. So his line of thinking may well be, if I want to win an election, I can't get too involved in this. There's a Westminster way of looking at what Keir Starmer's done this week, which goes, look, it's not a strike. The RMT aren't even affiliated to Labour anymore. And Boris Johnson's laying a huge elephant trap for him by saying, are you going to back strikers or not? And if Keir Starmer shows even a smidgen of support, then that the male, the son and number 10 are all going to go absolutely ballistic about it, right? I get that argument. There is another argument which goes, if I am in uh, the position of being a railway worker, earning somewhere in the mid-30s per year, or a teacher, um, and I've been through two years of hell, trying to keep school lessons going in the middle of a lockdown, and now I'm still being threatened with far below inflation pay rises, then I would expect the party called Labour to stick up for me. It is no good, the Labour Party, thinking, it's all right, lads, we'll wait, we'll wait a couple of years until there's an election, and then we'll bring out this magic manifesto, which will have all these policy proposals in. And, you know, if you just hold tight and take two years of impoverishment, um, then bear with us and we'll give you a reason to vote for us. A lot of people would quite like, I think, someone to speak up for them now. Aditya, a lot of what you've said is actually quite depressing. We have... <laughs> we have... <laughs> Great to talk to. But on the other hand, I'm quite disheartened. I mean, we've got, I mean, let's look at it clearly. We've got a lot of people's living standards declining. Labour's leadership is on the fence. Aditya, I know you have it in you to cheer me up. So just for a second, if we're looking ahead at this summer of discontent, is there any positive way of looking at it? I mean, I got used a long time ago, Nasheen, to not being the fun guy at the party, right? Um I think it's great that you get people like Mick Lynch at the RMT, Sharon Graham at Unite, uh, that you are getting a really thoughtful group of union leaders coming through. You can't paint Mick Lynch as being a, a bonehead. He's a very smart man. And I think there is a shift in public sympathy. 
partly because of what we all went through on the COVID, when we saw frontline workers really having to work like the clappers to keep our essential services uh, ticking over, but partly also because the past 40 years haven't been terrific for a lot of working people in this country. I think this is possibly the beginning of a pushback against the revolution of the 1980s, against the Thatcher-Reagan revolution, because the Thatcher-Reagan revolution basically stamped on workers' rights and handed over um, all the winnings to people right at the top. This is the beginning, I think, of a, of a pushback against it. Aditya, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Nisheen. It's been a real pleasure. That was Aditya Chakraborty and Gwyn Topham. You can follow Gwyn's reporting, read the latest on what's happening with rail strikes and catch up with Aditya's column, Profiteering Bosses, Not Workers, Are Pushing Up Inflation. Here's how to fight back at theguardian.com. And that's it for today. This episode was produced by Joshua Kelly and Eva Krisiak. Sound design is by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producers are Elizabeth Cassin and Phil Maynard. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. <laughs>